So I'll be reading Philippians 2. Um, this can be actually found in 831, page 831. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. As you hold out the word of life in order that I may boost on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I, I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Apophidus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow, Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, 
because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. This is word of the Lord. Well, just before I start, I really do want to say thank you uh, to all of you as the, the church here in Port Macquarie. Uh, for welcoming us, the mission team. It's been so lovely. We've been so looked after. Uh, I know a number of you have actually hosted members of the team in your house. Uh, from all reports, they've been thoroughly well looked after. I, I tell you what, they didn't want to hang out as a team almost. I think they were having so much fun at home. Uh, but it's been so great to see that. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been such a warm welcome here in Port. Uh, now, if you have your Bibles open, that's going to be helpful because we're going to flick through a little bit in there. Now, I wonder, what do you delight in? We live in an age and a world where it seems that pleasure is more highly sought after than ever before. Uh, as Scott mentioned, we're from Sydney, this team, and I think in Sydney you can see it pretty clearly, this, this idea that pleasure is what you're, you're after, this pleasure-seeking lifestyle. I mean, just think about it. You can go to a Westfield or, or a shopping centre, and, and at that shopping centre, you can, you can, well, if you like window shopping, you can do some window shopping to your heart's content. But at the Westfield, you can go and you can go to almost any kind of shop. You can buy almost any kind of thing that you like. You, you've got jewellery, you've got outdoors and sporting equipment, uh, you've got candles, you can, you can buy a pet. And before you go home, you, know, you can go and get a massage and you can go and watch a blockbuster movie in reclining leather lounges. It's... It's amazing. There's so many things that you can do to seek pleasure there. Or if you don't want to leave home, well, you can go on the internet, and, and there you can get any kind of thing that you like. You can, you can stream TV, or you can watch movies and, and videos. You can, well, you can listen to music and, and watch podcasts, or you can play games. There's, there's cat videos there. There's so many options for things that you can do. Or, or you can go outside, and outside, you can explore beaches and mountains and, and forests and cities. You can play frisbee and go rock climbing. Or you can do anything, have anything, be anything you want. And so I wonder, what are the things that you want? Though our team is from Sydney, as I was just saying before, Sharon and I are from Port Macquarie. And so we know that living in Port Macquarie is really just living the good life. This is, this is where it's at. It's beautiful beaches, it's great weather, it's friendly people, it's a great pace of life. And maybe our view is a little bit skewed because really we only come back on holidays now, so we're free as a bird, but I think living in port is fantastic. But is living the good life in Port Macquarie the thing that you delight in? Or, or where do your desires lie? What do you delight in? Is it relationships, intimacy and friendship? Is it being well thought of? Is it in having things and possessions or, or having experiences and great times? Is it success and the satisfaction of achieving something or, or doing something well? As Christians, what should we delight in? Where should we find joy? That's the question we'll be engaging with today in, in Philippians. And now we're jumping partway through. We're in chapter 2, but let me give you a feel for what's kind of going on in the whole letter. Uh, throughout the letter, it's pretty clear that Paul cares for the Philippians. Uh, he yearns with them with the affection of Christ in, in chapter 1. And there's two words that just seem to fill the whole letter. They're the buzzwords of this letter. It's joy and rejoice. 
this whole letter celebrates the partnership that Paul has with the Philippian church. And it's filled with joy. The Philippians are fully on board with Paul's mission. They're working with him in the gospel, and Paul delights in them. And yet here at the start of chapter 2, Paul asks them to complete his joy. So what kind of joy is on view for Paul? How can the Philippians complete his joy? And again, where should we find joy? Well, to find out, we should get into the passage. We're at point one, which is in your outlines. We're at Christ the model. Christ the model. Let's see how the chapter starts off from verse one. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Well, is there any encouragement in Christ? I I take it that there's an obvious answer. Paul expects the answer to be, well, yes, there is. And we've already talked about what kind of relationship Paul had with the Philippians. They're partners with him in the gospel. So, of course, there's encouragement and comfort and love. Now, if there is, what does Paul want them to do? He wants them to be united. That's what will complete his joy. So if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. The Philippians are called to be united with each other. They're they're called to be one. They're they're to be on the same page, to agree. And there's a similar command in verse 14, further on, they're to do all things without grumbling and questioning or arguing. They're all to get along. That sounds pretty good in theory, I think. After all, isn't that what everyone wants, just to all get along and, and just be okay together? But does that mean we need to agree on, agree on things like which beach is better, you know, Flynn's or, or Shelley's? Or do you need to agree with me that coffee is really quite disgusting and no one should drink it? You know, I, I, those maybe not, are not great examples. But there are some kinds of unity that aren't a good idea, aren't there? You see, Christianity is a set of claims about the truth. We believe that Jesus lived and died and that he rose again, and we believe that those facts have a really significant meaning for everyone. But there are some people who don't believe that Jesus existed at all. So how are we going to agree with those people? Of course, you can see the problem, can't you? Eventually, to agree with everyone, to be united with everyone, well, we'll end up with no truth at all. We'll we'll end up just with agreeing. We'll just end up with consensus. And in the end, that list of things we can agree on, it's going to be pretty short, I think. No, this passage, it's not talking about that kind of unity. This isn't just unity for the sake of it. It's not just unity for the sake of unity. The Philippians are to have the same mind and to be united, but it's not just with each other. You see, it's with Paul himself. Because what does that unity look like? Well, it looks like humility. It looks like selflessness. It looks like self-sacrifice. Have a look in verses 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, 
The context of Paul as he writes Philippians is, is really important here. Uh, as I was chatting with Scott during the week, he reminded me of an article from the Babylon Bee. Do you guys know the Babylon Bee? It's a, it's a spoof Christian uh, website. They, they put up articles about fake Christian news, and it's quite, meant to be quite funny. I think, it, think it's quite funny. Um, fake news you can trust. That's, that's a good line. All right. Now, in Philippians, towards the end, in chapter 4, there's a, a great verse. Chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, this article wanted to say that new research had said that actually we now know what Paul's true context was. He, he just finished a baseball game. Now, it's an American website, so baseball. He just finished a baseball game. He just won. And so that's why he writes this verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, it's a pretty good article. But the truth about Paul's context adds a lot more gravity to the situation. You see, Paul is in prison as he writes. Paul's in prison, he's in chains for the gospel, even as he writes this letter, and he's facing the threat of death. In chapter 1, just before our passage, he's choosing between whether he'll live or whether he'll die. He's, he's in such a bad situation that he's almost dead, but he decides that he wants to try to keep living for the sake of the Philippians. Paul's context is really helpful in understanding how he's looking out for others' interests. Because he has this attitude of selfless love. He, he's suffering for the Philippians' sake. And he wants them to be united with him in having that same love for others. And the big reason why, the big reason why he wants them to be united with him in this selfless love for others, well, it's, it's because that's what's been modelled to them. Modeled to them not just by Paul, but far, far more by the Lord Jesus himself. In verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I wonder if you ever think deeply about Christ's humility. Uh, I, for one, often don't realize just how much Jesus gave up to become human. It's difficult to grasp, I think. Jesus, who in every way is equal to God. Jesus, who's existed since before time began, who was involved in creation, who holds the whole world together, who had been never limited in any way, who's eternal and complete, and is just so incredibly high above every one of us. The, the comparison between us and Jesus, it's kind of embarrassing, really. And yet God in Jesus became human. He got hungry. He got tired. He, he had to have his nappy changed, I assume. He, he probably had pimples. He intentionally gave up everything he had. He gave up all his glory, all his godhood, to take the form and limitations of his own creatures. And as if that wasn't humbling himself enough, he humbled himself even to die. The God of the universe in Jesus, experienced death. Over this past week, we from the NTE team, we've come from Canberra, even though we're from Sydney. We come from Canberra because we've been at a, a conference. It's a conference for Christian university students from all across Australia. We come together and we get training in, in reading the Bible well. Now, this year, a guy, an American guy named Kevin DeYoung, 
he came and, and looked together with us at the Scriptures, looking particularly at the start of John. Uh, we looked really, really deeply. I think a few of us kind of had our brains melt. We were looking so deeply into the text. But we looked really deeply. We had our view expanded and, and broadened and just grown immensely as we beheld the true and living God in the Scriptures. We, we saw really just a little bit more of His majesty as we thought about Jesus and who He is. But you know, no matter how great we think Jesus is, we don't see Him highly enough. No matter how much you understand of the nature of this Christ that we worship, well, we don't understand Him properly enough. Christ is glorious, more than we can understand. But Christ made Himself nothing. In verse 7. This year I've been chatting with a Muslim friend on campus. We've been reading the Quran and the Bible together just to kind of compare what we believe and to engage together about what our different faiths are. It's been great having both our texts open and seeing who God is together. But of course, in the end, we believe some very different things about who God is and especially about who Jesus is. You see... Islam claims such a high view of God, such a high view of God that it won't accept his incarnation as a human. It can't accept that the human Jesus truly was God. God is God, after all. How could God ever suffer the indignity of becoming something less? How could he ever become his own creation? How could he suffer all of our unholiness and uncleanness? For Muslims... Jesus instead must be a prophet, a, a, good, a good human, a really great human, but still only a human. He couldn't be God. And in fact, even only as a prophet and not God, Jesus is too holy to die in Islam. God could not become human, they would say. The indignity and the humility would just be too great. And the incarnate God could not suffer that final indignity of a criminal's death suffering naked on a cross at the hands of the very dust he created. Islam has a very high view of God, but it rejects what God has revealed about himself in the Bible. Because that's what we're clearly told here in Philippians. Let me read from verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the greatest example of humility. In his obedience to the will of his Father, Jesus gave up his status and privilege. He became a lowly human, and he obediently humbled himself even to death on the cross. I wonder if we're appropriately astonished at this humility of, of Jesus. Well, Christ is the model for the Philippians in their humility, as Paul calls them to live selflessly, but Christ is our model too. How do we go following after him? Do we count others more significant than ourselves? Do we care more about others getting what they need than about us getting 
what we want? How do you think we go with this? Whether here in Port Macquarie or, or back home in Sydney, how do you think we go? I'd guess that most of us are pretty happy to help out others, but what about when it's not convenient? What about when it costs? Because it certainly wasn't convenient for Jesus. The humility and selflessness of Jesus is significant, not just because of what it models to us, though, but it's significant because of what it achieves as well. So we've done Christ the model, point one. We're now at point two, Christ the master. Christ the master. Well, what did Christ's humility achieve? Well, Christ's death isn't the end. It's it's good news. God raised and glorified him. So let's keep reading from verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has raised and exalted Jesus. He's been appointed as the ruler of all. And whether we acknowledge it or not, Christ is Lord of all. And eventually, we will all bow before him as he judges the world. Have you recognized Jesus as your Lord? Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's the gospel that's so important for Christians to keep being reminded of. Because one day soon, Jesus' lordship will be fully revealed. But he's already Lord now, so through his humble death on the cross, he's been exalted. Do you submit to him? Do you live with him as your Lord? And if not, will you? For the Philippians, though, what does it look like to have Jesus Christ as their master? Read with me from verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What do you do when you have a master? You obey them. That's what you do. Paul wants them to obey. He wants them to exercise humility, to live out their selfless unity in the gospel. And in the end, he wants them to work out their salvation. Now, hang on. I know you're thinking this. You're telling me that they they haven't worked it out yet? All this time we're thinking about how the Philippians are great gospel partners with Paul, that they're they're on board with him. You're, You're telling me that they haven't even sorted out salvation? Aren't they Christian? Well, I think it's a bit of a confusing line. Because what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? How do do you do that? I think verse 14 raises the stakes even further. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault. Does this feel dangerously close to a gospel of works to you? To, To saying, this is what you need to do to be saved? I think on my first reading through, I wanted to preserve the gospel of grace. And so I, I kind of ignored what this was saying. Because central to what Christians believe is this, that nothing we do can add or subtract from what Christ has done in securing our standing before God. Universally, we've all rejected God. We, we've all 
gone away from Him. None of us are worthy before Him. But Christ's obedience to the point of death on the cross, that's achieved something for us. If we trust in Christ's death alone, we are forgiven before God. Nothing we do will change that. So how do verses like these fit in? Are we being called to work out our salvation? Well, yes, we are, but you see, our forgiveness is guaranteed if we trust in God, if we trust in Christ, but we can't trust in Christ if we don't also submit to Him as Lord. Let me say that again. Our forgiveness is guaranteed if we trust in Christ, but we can't trust in Christ without also submitting to Him as Lord. It's a package deal. You can't have one without the other. Because that's what we've seen. The very act that secured our salvation, the very act of Christ's death on the cross, is the same act that led to Him being exalted as the Lord of all. Christ is the one whom everyone everywhere will submit to. Christ is our Master, if we trust in Him for the salvation He offers. And so again, what do you do when you have a Master? You obey them. Uh, my wife and I, we have a, a friend who's recently just had a baby, uh, little Dexter. Now, little Dexter, he's, he's definitely still little Dexter. Uh, you see, he actually was born a little bit early. He had an, an emergency C-section to be delivered, I think, about five or six weeks premature. He's very little, and for the last month, he's just a month and a day old now, I think. For the last month, he's had to live in the hospital. Now, each day, uh, his parents can come and see him, but each night at around 7.30, they have to go home and leave him behind. And that's really tough, and I can only imagine what that feels like. We're really looking forward to when he'll be able to come home with them. And I wonder, when that happens, will that make it more real for his parents? I expect that it will make him seem more theirs when they finally get to put him to bed in his own cot, in his own room. Now, Desta is definitely our friend's son. There's no doubt about that. And I don't think that they, they think otherwise either. Um, not being able to bring him home doesn't change that fact. It's definitely true. But whilst their circumstances don't change the reality, it doesn't mean that their circumstances don't matter. I think it's going to make such a difference when they finally get to bring him home and they can show that he is theirs as they drive him home. And I think it's the same for us. We who have faith in him, in Christ, well, Christ has already saved us. This is the reality. He's bought us with his blood. We're not accepted or rejected because of anything we do. That's, that's already done. It's a done deal. But our circumstances, whilst they don't change the deeper reality that doesn't mean they don't matter. What we do does matter. We're called to be holy. We're to live out our salvation. We're to work it out with fear and trembling. It's important we don't forget this because Christians are called to be holy. It never makes sense to go on living as if nothing had happened once you became a Christian uh, because something has. The Lord who is at the center of the universe is our Lord. And He cares enough about the way that we live that He actually came and He died to do something about it. He came and He died so that we could live for God. And you know the great news, well, this is already great news, but 
God is also working with and in the Philippians as well. In verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. How amazing! And what great assurance that Paul calls these Christians to work out their salvation, to, to never cease working towards being blameless and faultless and innocent and without blemish. But he also reminds them that God is responsible as well. Whilst they're responsible for letting their manner of life be worthy of the gospel earlier in chapter 1, right at the start of the letter, Paul reminds them of this promise that God will bring the work to completion in them. It's both acting together. We are responsible, but God is committed to doing the work. Now, so far we've seen how Christ is the model of self-sacrifice for the good of others, for, for Christians, and we've engaged briefly with what it means for Christ to be the, the master of all. So Christ the model and Christ the master. Let's see how all of this is tied up with joy. Let's see where Paul drives this home. We're at point three, joy in the mission. Joy in the mission. Being obedient servants of the Lord of all means being involved in the Lord's mission, His global mission. Now, we've already seen how Christ has been made the Lord of all. It's in verse 10. Everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will submit to Him as, Christ, as God has exalted Him. There are very real implications of serving a master who's like this. There's a very real implication of serving a master who has a universal lordship. Serving the one who has the Lord of all, well, have a look in verse 15. The Philippians are to be children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. The whole point of their unity, the whole point of their humility, of their holiness, is so that they'll be seen. It's so that they'll be different to the people in darkness around them. It's they're to be on display. Uh, as I said before, uh, Sharon and I have been married for almost five years. I, I do know the anniversary date. You'll be happy to know. It's in February, and it's the 15th. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's good. So that means we're coming up soon to five years of being married. Um, and, you know, when we got married, and actually just before it as well, we, we went through a bit of a season of going to weddings. Uh, it seems like they all came at once, and since then we've been to quite a few. It seems pretty obvious, but at a wedding, everyone gets dressed up. All right? if, you're, if you're not dressed up and you're at a wedding, you're probably in the wrong place, because everyone gets dressed up when they go to a wedding, and especially the couple getting married. Now, uh, I think I could share a little bit about what we did to get ready and to get married. There's lots of hair and makeup and dresses that needed to be organized, but why do the bride and the groom get dressed up? It's because they're going to be on display. Everyone's going to see them, and, and people will take photos and look at them on the walls. They're going to be on display. This is a big day. They're going to be seen, so they need to get dressed appropriately. Christians are to put on holiness so that, they're to be, so that they can be seen. We're to be dressed appropriately so that we can shine like stars in the universe, as Philippians says. Christians are to stand out for Christ. The Philippians are to be pointing people to their master, just like Paul does. They're, they're to have the same attitude as him. 
In verse 16, Paul wants them to hold out the word of life in order that he may boast on the day of Christ that he did not run or labor for nothing. But even if he is to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from their faith, he's glad and he rejoices with them so that they too should rejoice with him. Paul can rejoice even in the face of suffering and death and being poured out as a drink offering, even in the face of dying in his service of the gospel. He can rejoice and he calls on the Philippians to rejoice with him. They're to have the same attitude as him. They're to stand united with the same selfless mind of Paul and, and most of all of Christ, looking to the interests of others. And the interest of others is really the gospel. They're to be on display proclaiming the gospel. You see, Christ as model and Christ as master has changed everything. Paul and Christ didn't suffer so that more people could own Xboxes. They didn't suffer so that people could just live easier and more comfortable lives or more people could go to France or more people could retire where, where the beach is nearby. No, Christ emptied himself to become a human and even to die to look out for the most significant interest humanity has, to look out for their eternal salvation. And, and Paul suffers in prison and he's in chains and he's facing death because his life is given over in the service of the gospel. He labors to hold out the promise of eternal life. It's the gospel that he's proclaiming. It's the gospel that Christ has achieved. This is what drives them. Christ has been given the name that is above every name. And one day every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But in the meantime, before we see that fully, those who follow him must be involved in proclaiming Christ. And so as we're challenged to live selflessly and submit to our master today, what, what does it look like? Well, we've seen it looks like joining in Christ's mission. Now, in, in our chapter, uh, Philippians 2, after exhorting the Philippians to, to be glad and rejoice with him in verse 18, Paul goes on to talk about two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we soon notice that they're sent to the Philippians to help them rejoice, I think. In, in effect, these two kind of serve as something like case studies for the Philippians and for us as well. They're case studies in how to serve Christ the model and the master in his global mission. Uh, you could have a look uh, all through that section. You see their genuine concern and their selfless love for others. But even in verse 30, right at the end, you can see that Epaphroditus risked death for Paul and the Philippians. Uh, in verse 30 it says, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy. In fact, both Timothy and Epaphroditus, they act as excellent examples of how we can live out exactly what Paul has been calling for. Their humble service of the gospel has been seeking the good of others. They've counted others more significant than themselves. And the good that they seek shows that they understand what it means to have Jesus as their master. It's not just 
that they might be more comfortable. The good that they seek is others knowing the gospel. There's a connection to joy here, to Christian joy. And it's a connection we can't ignore because, as we've seen, the revelation of Christ as master has changed everything for Paul. It's, it's restructured his perspective, it's restructured his perspective, and it's reordered his priorities. Everything has changed. Even as it costs him everything, Paul can rejoice. He's filled with joy there in verse 17 as he sees his labors in the gospel bearing fruit, even at his own expense. And as we saw right at the start, Paul wants the Philippians to have the same perspective. He wants them to have the same mind. He wants them to complete his joy. By having the same selfless perspective, he wants them to take joy in serving others with the gospel. Joy is even there in verse 29. It's, It's how they're to welcome Epaphroditus. Here's what Christian joy looks like. Here is how Philippians, how the Philippians, and and how we can have joy. The Philippians are to complete Paul's joy, and it's by taking joy in joining in the mission. How do you go at that? How do you go at joining in the mission and, and, and shining to make Christ known? How do you go at doing it joyfully? Do you take on the task of evangelism at all, or do you choose not to bring up Jesus in the workplace or amongst your friends or or with your family? We heard from Beck before about how sometimes that's a real struggle, being able to to share Jesus and, and not being afraid to stick out and be different. Is sharing Jesus a chore and a duty, or or is it something that's a joy for you? Now, as we started today, I asked, what do you find joy in? What are the things you delight in? What what is it that gets you really excited? It is right to, to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, and He's given us so many of them, especially here in Port Macquarie. We can and should enjoy being outside and going to the beach and enjoying and exploring God's world. And we should enjoy company and friendship and family and relationships and time together. And we should enjoy sports and games and TV and books and and all the other good pleasures and pursuits that God has gifted us with. But have you seen how Christ as Lord of all has changed everything? Christ as Lord of all affects our joy. Christ gave up everything to become nothing in His humble obedience to the Father. And like Him, we are called to look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Like Him, we are called not to live for ourselves. And so it's, it's never appropriate for us to selfishly pursue pleasure. We're not living for ourselves anymore. Have you seen how Christ, as our model, affects our joy. And likewise, have you noticed how God exalting Christ as our Lord and our Master, that's also changed everything. Christ is at the centre of the universe and should be at the centre of our lives. He can't be our Saviour if He's not also our Lord and Master. Jesus demands our obedience. 
Christ is our master. And what's the purpose of that obedience? Well, it's that we be involved in the proclamation of the universal Lord. Our global master means a global mission. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing to us the true gospel about your Son. We thank you that Jesus willingly left his glory in heaven to become a man, that he humbled himself and suffered with us and died for us. Father, thank you that we can know him and that we can serve him as our Lord of all. Father, please help us to model our lives on his in the way that we serve others and live for you. And Father, please help us to take joy as we share in this mission of proclaiming Christ to the nations. Father, please keep working in us for your glory. Help us to be bold in proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Give us great confidence in that. And Father, please help us to continue to delight in you. Amen.